This is from the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. All right. Thank you, Tom, very much. Well... Welcome, everybody. So good to see you to Rethink Church. Uh, And those of you watching online, appreciate you tuning in today. We're going to talk about something extremely important when it comes to church. What Tom just read is a very important passage of Scripture when it comes to talking about what is the church, what is the church doing, what is the purpose of church. Today, we're going to focus on suffering, rethinking suffering. So this is what has been said, everybody. It has been said this, that the single biggest reason that people are abandoning their faith is over this issue of suffering. The argument goes something like this, okay? goes, if God continues to allow suffering because he can't stop it, he might be good, but he's not all-powerful. Here's the other side. If God allows suffering because he could stop it, but he won't, stop it, then he might be all-powerful, but he's not all-good. Let me, let me shorten this for you, okay? I'm going to put it in a very few words. If he could, he would. If he was good, he would. So there you go. There's the, there's the Cliff Notes version on the first statements that I made. Why is there pain and suffering? So Tom just read Matthew chapter 16. Very important. So Jesus there is talking to his disciples It's getting very close to his crucifixion. And actually, his popularity has been waning. He's been losing some of his disciples. People have been turning back. And so Jesus asked, who do you say I am? It's a very important question. For all those who have heard of Jesus Christ, there's a responsibility that comes with the knowledge of exactly who Jesus Christ is, and all of us have to answer the same question. If I know about Jesus and I've heard about Jesus and it's clearly explained to me, so who do I say Jesus Christ is? And so Peter answers back on behalf of all the other, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Some of us hear, you know, Jesus Christ. Some of us think, oh, that's his last name, Jesus Christ. He's Mr. Christ. Christ is a title. Christ is, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one, you are God come down to rescue us. You are it, you are God. And Jesus, yes, you've got it, you've got it. And then, out of all things to happen next, after they say this, then Jesus says, now I need to tell you that I must suffer. Well, this was a major disconnect for the disciples. 
because God never suffers, and whoever is closest to God, the closer you get to God, the less suffering you do. And all of a sudden, God says to them, Jesus says to them, God says to them, I must suffer. Like, whoa, Peter pulls Jesus aside. Hey, Jesus, you must have missed theology class. God does not suffer. There's no suffering here. And Jesus says, I must I must suffer. So this morning, we want, to talk about, we want to talk about suffering here. Why is there, why is there suffering? Suffering causes many people problems. I was reading uh, the book about Steve Jobs that Walter Isaacson wrote, and some of you probably have read that book. It came out a number of years ago. It was an excellent book. Steve Jobs, as a child, went to church. Up until he was, I don't know, 11, 12, 13 years old, he faithfully went to church. Steve Jobs did. And then he saw a magazine cover that showed tremendous suffering, and it bothered him a lot. And so he went to his pastor, and he said, Pastor, does God know about this, the suffering on the magazine? And the pastor said, yes. And that was it for Steve Jobs. He said, that's it? I'm abandoning my faith in God. I cannot believe in a God that allows suffering. There's many people who are abandoning their faith. We're going to talk about some ironies. We've been talking about them all throughout this Rethink Church series. There's some tremendous ironies that exist. Let me recap a couple, and then we're going to get into the irony about suffering because it's so strange. So we talked about this a few weeks ago, right? It's been said by many the church is like the source of oppression in this world. The, church, church is, the Christian church specifically is bringing oppression and pain to the world. That's what's said on one side. And here's the irony. On the opposite side, there's been one global movement to alleviate oppression and slavery on the planet. And it happened because people who believed in the Bible and believed in Jesus Christ, there's been one, everybody, one. And it started from the Christian church. Here's the other irony that we have. It's been said that the church is anti-science. It's full of myth. It's foolish. Listen to Bill Maher. You'll get the picture, okay? There's been one, one global scientific revolution that happened in the 16th and 17th century, and it happened from people. Think of the irony of this. It happened from people predominantly who believed in the Bible and who believed that God created this world, and it fueled their passion for science. They believed that God created a world that was ordered, right? Sir Isaac Newton, considered one of the greatest, some people believe he was the greatest, wrote more on theology than he did on science. Isn't that ironic? How about this? It's been said, we talked about this in the beginning of the series, it's been said, the church, the Christian church is irrelevant and no longer offers anything good in our society. Dr. King, civil rights movement. What did Dr. King do, everybody? So Dr. King, did he look at what was happening in the South of the United States of America and say, you know what, there's actually some churches here, Christian churches in the South, who are a part of the, part of the problem. They're part of the suffering. Did he say, okay, I'm abandoning the faith? No, he said, we need to go deeper in our understanding of Jesus Christ. Don't you see that is incredibly ironic? Those two things are just like in total conflict. And now here, the whole suffering thing, this is fascinating. Does this fascinate you? It fascinates me. And again, the suffering thing is absolutely fascinating. There are people who are abandoning their faith because of suffering, everybody. But do you realize that multitudes of people around this planet are actually coming to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of suffering? You know that? 
Huge amounts of people. You think about this. In the 50s and 60s, in Latin America, clergy members, both Catholic and Protestant, they looked at the suffering. They looked at people, poor and oppressed, who were suffering and said, well, that's it. They looked at their side. That's it. I'm out. I'm done. Secular humanism, that's here I come. I'm abandoning the faith. Atheism is the way to go. You know what's happened in the last three decades in Latin America? There have been an explosion of conversions to Christ. 93% of Latin America claims Christianity. These people over here looked at their suffering over there and said, I'm out. These people over here who were suffering said, I'm in. Like whole villages in town. Isn't this ironic? Does this... Okay. We have to be careful, okay? Here's the thing. We have to be careful using somebody else's suffering and pain as an argument against the existence of God. We can use our own suffering and pain all day long, all day long, all day long. But using somebody else and saying, well, you're, you know, foolish or dumb, a lot of stuff has been said, right? That's arrogant, and we don't want to do that. Use your own, but don't use some. And so that's what was... Okay. Francis Collins, the director of NIH here in Bethesda, a scientist. He came to faith because of suffering. He went through a very deep personal pain in his life and as a result came to faith in Jesus Christ. He believes in the Bible and what sparked it was suffering and pain. If you're here this morning, I brought up science a minute ago, and you're like, ah, I don't see you. Or you know somebody who's really struggling. The Language of God, great book to read, written by Francis Collins, a scientist, talks about how all that comes together. There's a ton of other books you could read, but that's a great one. He came to faith because of it. So here's my question this morning. I have one question I want to go after this morning, that's it. Is there any good in suffering? Is there any good in suffering? Now, I got to tell you this. I am not excited about talking about this subject. You know what I'm saying? It's not like, yes, we're going to talk about suffering today. It's been almost a decade since I've specifically talked about this subject, and I want to tell you why. Can I tell you why? Go ahead and say yes. yes. That's good. Here's the reason why. For some reason, the stuff that I end up speaking on here, and like a lot of times, not all that, a lot of times God takes me through. Like I get to personally experience, not in a huge way, but just a piece of it. I remember about a decade ago when I spoke about suffering. I, it was early in the week, so I'm going to speak on Sunday. So Monday of that week before, I'm pulling into a parking lot. I'm going to play basketball, and I'm pulling into this underground lot to do this. And I'm thinking about the fact that some of us have suffering just because we make careless mistakes. It wasn't bad. It wasn't rebellious or whatever. It was just a careless mistake or whatever. But then it causes a suffering. And the whole point is going through my head. And I'm pulling, and I'm pulling in this parking spot, and I see there's this big pipe there. And I noted it. Ah, that pipe. When you get out of the car, don't hit your head. Well, in between that thought and getting out of the car, I forgot about it and I whacked my head big time. And I thought, you know, do, do I always have to have these? I asked for application points to my messages. <laughs> but this is, a, this, is a, this is a little much. And so this past week, this is on my mind. I'm like, oh my gosh, please. <laughs> you know, can we just avoid problems all week long? Nothing. And I thought to myself yesterday, I said, this is fantastic. For the first time, I have escaped all these issues. Then yesterday afternoon, uh, uh, we were grilling. Because it was like, what, 80 degrees outside, right? So we're, we're, I'm grilling out. And what I was cooking wasn't quite done, and I had to relight. So our ignition's not working on the grill. So I had to get underneath of it and relight it. 
My back, because of too much basketball for too many years, hurts. And so anytime I bend over, I put my hand on something. Yes. 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 And it hurt. <laughs> it was, it was, I put my hand on the top. You know, I had the lid down, put it. I actually heard something go. Oh, whoa. All right. There we go. All right. Is there any good? Is there any good to suffering? Here's the first thing. It helps us navigate life. So here's the thing. When you think about getting wisdom on life issues from somebody, who do you want to talk to? Somebody who's never had suffering, somebody who's never had adversity, somebody who's never had pain, or do you want to go to somebody who's been seasoned by problems? There's a depth of character. You all want to, I want to go to somebody who's been through it, who suffered. Like, I don't want to suffer, but I sure as heck want you to suffer so that I can gain from your knowledge and wisdom and experience and your depth of character. And there's a lack of selfishness that's associated with it, right? So we want that. We want that. But not for me. I want it for you, right? So I can learn from you. Did you to Fortune, Fortune Magazine this past week. Did you all see this? World's greatest leader, 2017 world's greatest leader. Did you all read that article on who's the, who is the greatest leader in the world? Number two, they top five. Number two, Jack Ma. Jack Ma of who? Alibaba. Number three, the Pope of the Pope. Right? <laughs> right? Uh, number four, Melinda Gates, Gates Foundation. Number five, Jeff Bezos. Right? Amazon. Who's number one? Anybody know who's number one? Anybody, anybody, anybody? Theo Epstein. Whoever said that up there, you're exactly right. And who is Theo Epstein? He's the president of his baseball operations for the Chicago Cubs, who after 108 years broke the curse of the billy goat, right? And after all, this is a big deal. For those of you here, you're, not, you're like, I don't care about sports. It has nothing to do with church. Okay. All right. This is a big deal. After 108 years, they won the World Series. And so here's the world's greatest leader, according to Fortune magazine. How did you do this, Theo Epstein? What did he do? He told his scouts, I want you to get me one type of player. What type of player do you want us to get you, Theo Epstein? Only give me players who have been through suffering and adversity. I'm only interested in players who've been, I want to know everything about the adversity in their life on and off the field. Those are the players I want. He had scouts say, okay, look, look. You know, we're, we're, we're going to talk about batting stats and, and we're going to do all those kind of things for you. But this, this, this adversity thing, I'm not sure about some, some of the scouts. And he said, okay, good, you're fired. <laughs> he told his scouts, you can't talk to me about what, if I can't get a big, on the adversity and suffering in life, not interested. Those are the only players. And that is how. So obviously suffering does something. It wins you a world series after 108 years of drought. I'm just saying. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just saying, everybody. The book of Proverbs says this. Whoever loves pleasure will become poor. Let me ask you a question. What is a bigger problem? Is the bigger problem pleasure or is the bigger problem pain? Bigger problem pleasure, bigger problem pain. G.K. Chesterton, great quote. Please listen meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. Isn't that fascinating? So I'm reading an article. It came out four, five, six. I've saved it because it was just so 
It was sad. It was disturbing. It was enlightening. All these things. American teens. American teenagers. Suicide rates. Anxiety. Hopelessness. Despair. All just going up. Up, 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 up. Amongst our teenagers. Many of our teenagers are in Inflicting pain on themselves, physical pain on themselves, according to the article, to alleviate the emotional pain that they are feeling. So they're actually going out and seeking suffering so they can have relief. Do you know primarily who this is happening with? What, what type of kid? Rich, white kids. Anytime I go on a mission trip, either with our youth or with adults, you know what invariably happens? We go to some area of the world that there's suffering and there's pain. And us rich Americans come back. I don't care where you think you are on the richness scale. Okay? In the area of the world that we go to, I'm pretty sure 99.9% .9 of us in this room would qualify as rich as comparison to the places we've been. Okay? And then we come back and we're like, oh my gosh, new perspective. Somehow, amazingly, there's new joy new purpose. I'll never forget. I went to a debrief after a big trip. I wasn't on this trip, but I knew all about it. I've been to the same place that our youth group went before, and I'm sitting there listening to this debrief. There was tons of our youth that went on this trip, and one of the youth got up after being a week in this country, and they said this. They said, you know what? After being there, it made me want to come back. I wanted to be obedient to my parents. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's miraculous, everybody. Please. <laughs> Not enough of you have teenagers. You, I mean, please. That's incredible. That's incredible. Okay. So is there any good? There's the first thing. Is there any good to suffering? Point number two. Suffering. As I've said, many people say, oh, look, they're suffering. God does not exist. Suffering does not disprove the existence of God. Here's what we need to know. I know it's all about us as Americans. I know we're the center of the universe here. But you need to know this. I've talked a lot about the new atheists, Hitchens and Harris and Dawkins. This argument that God does not exist because of suffering is a first world argument. The third world is not discussing this. Matter of fact, up until a couple hundred years ago, nobody was discussing this. This is a recent phenomenon. We discuss it in America, Canada, Western Europe, we discuss it. They're not discussing this in Africa. They're not discussing this in Latin America. They're not discussing it in China. This is a first world deal. It's an argument. In those areas of the world, they are flocking to Christianity. They're flocking to the hope of a loving God who would come and would suffer for us. It's a first world argument, and it's very, very ironic. And I just think about this irony. We say, how could there be a loving God who would allow suffering? Where did the concept of a loving God come from? Do you know where it came from? It did not exist until Jesus Christ. That whole, like, Jesus created the platform that, oh, yeah, God, look. Before that, it's, oh, God's angry. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. It's a God of wrath, a God of judgment. The whole basis for people who say, oh, I believe in a God of love. If somebody says they believe in a God of, God of love, some, anybody says that to you, Jesus is the one that brought that thought into this universe. Jesus is. It's so, again, the irony is phenomenal, all right? 
Poor and oppressed people are turning to Christ in record numbers. Now I want to ask you about worldviews. That's not, please, if you are a secular humanist here today, and there's a number of us in the room that are, this is not a slam. This is not, we're glad that you're here. We hope that, again, I'll say, you don't have to believe to belong here. We are thrilled that you're here. We hope that you'll become a part of this community. We will never be who we're supposed to be unless you're a part of this community, period, okay? Worldviews. Secular humanism, you're an accident. You're random. This is just, everybody knows this. This is a matter of fact. I'm not putting a spin on anything. You're here because natural selection. What is natural selection, everybody? Natural selection is only the strong survive. The strong eat the weak, right? Nature, it's nature's way. And nature is what? Nature is violent. Don't you watch the shows on TV? with the lion or the YouTube videos, right? The lion and the killer whale and all this. I've talked about this for years. I grew up as a kid, always, always, always going to New Smyrna Beach, Florida, which today is the shark attack capital, you know, of the world. And we still, to this day, sometimes vacation down there. You know why? You know why we go there for vacation? It's very, very cheap, right? (laughs) You think about it. Think about it. You're going to a beach where you can't get into the water, right? Just makes sense. It's a little boring, but all right. It's the way it's way. So recently, New Smyrna Beach was again on the news. We have no idea what shark could have in the world, okay? But it's on the news again. You know why? A five-foot shark washed up on the beaches of New Smyrna Beach, bitten in half. What's the question? What's big enough <laughs> to bite a five-foot shark right in half? They've been tracking a 14-foot great white shark that's off the coast of New Smyrna Beach. And in the report, it also included this. Is if you've ever swam, if you've ever surfed like me in the waters of New Smyrna Beach, you've been within 10 feet of a shark probably all the time. Now that'll, right? That'll, 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 that'll freak you out. I don't even know why I told you all this story. Okay. <laughs> Violence is nature's way. And many of us, we've heard of Stephen Hawking. I mean, the guy is brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. He says, you know, there's something that keeps me up at night. There's something that is a terror in my mind. And he talks about natural selection. Listen, quote, natural selection assumes natural rejection, which means we have arrived here because of aggression. The strong, you're here. Strong defeats the weak. And my hope, back to the quote, is that we can keep from eating each other up for another hundred years. At that point, science would have devised a scheme to take all of us into different planets of the universe, and no one atrocity would destroy all of us at the same time. So the only hope is, right, secular humanism, we're all going to eat each other up, is we're hoping that science gives us a way to go to a bunch of different planets so that we don't kill each other all at the same time. That's one of the most brilliant minds we have today. All right. That's the secular humanist worldview. We're random, and there's natural selection, and that's nature's way, and nature is violent. You have a problem with suffering and pain. I don't know that you go to secular humanism to find comfort. Here's a Christian worldview, all right? I want you to think about somebody in suffering and pain and which worldview would give more hope and help, okay? Here's a Christian worldview. You've been created by a loving God for an eternal purpose. You have been specifically designed and created by a loving God for an eternal purpose. This world has been corrupted because we have rejected God and we've chosen to go our own way. But God, in His great love for us, came down out of heaven, stepped into our suffering and pain because of His great love to rescue us and to lead us to a better home. 
Which one of those worldviews would appeal to somebody in a greater way? And so what we find in most of the world is that there is a movement towards Jesus Christ as hope. John 3.16, considered one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but receive eternal life. He gave because of love. Why did he give? Because of love. He gave because of love. To do what? For what? You, send, you spent, sent Jesus here to what? Sent Jesus here to step into our... Well, God doesn't suffer. Everybody knows that. God does not suffer. And the closer you get to God, the least you're going to suffer. And yet, here comes Jesus saying the exact opposite. I have come to suffer. I've come to suffer for you. Suffering and love go hand in hand. Suffering does not prove God does not exist. All right. So let's just say I'm a bad dad. That I'm absent from my, my, my children uh, or... I mistreat them, or I'm loud, and I scream, or I'm not loving, all those things. That doesn't mean I don't exist. That just means I'm a, I'm a bad dad, but it doesn't mean I, I, I don't exist. So that argument that God is allowing suffering means that he doesn't exist, that doesn't float. But what could float is this, is that God is not good. But then the problem becomes this. What do we do about a God who comes down and suffers with us? How do we figure that out? Historian Bruce Shelley says this, Christianity is the only religion on the planet in which its central act is the humiliation of its God. Nobody's ever heard of a suffering God before. Nobody's ever heard about God coming down into our suffering in order to rescue us and alleviate our suffering and to take us home. Trinity. Talk about this for a second, the Trinity. I can't explain the Trinity to you. Let's just go ahead and get that right out front. (laughs) Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've heard it tried to be explained in many different ways. Well, the Father is like water, and Jesus is like ice, and the Holy Spirit's like mist. I'm like, nah, it doesn't quite work. Okay, so I can't explain it to you. But let's just go with what we obviously know. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a divine community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual family. I often say this about Grace Community Church. If we're anything, we're a family. If we are anything, we're a family. Because God is a family. It's a spiritual family. And we're told in the Scriptures that God wanted to have children. That's all of us. All of us are His children. Right? That God wanted. So the family wanted to have children. And I believe when it comes to this issue here, that we see that there's an agreement between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that no matter what, John 3, 16, no matter what, rescue the kids. Something interesting happened uh, a number of years ago to my family. It was a bunch of years ago because my kids were really small at the time. We were at a beach, not New Smyrna Beach. We were at a beach, and the water was really, really clear. And so we had the, you know, the mask on and the goggles, and we were out. We could see stuff. And we swam quite a ways out to where the water was probably 12 feet deep. And there was a platform, a pretty good-sized platform, and it had like the ladder from the pool where you could climb up onto the platform, and then you could just jump off of this platform and, you know, cannonballs. And so we were going to do that. So we're out there somewhere, and we get to the ladder. Nobody's, nobody's up on the platform yet. And I look down with my mask, and what do I see below us? I see a shark. And it's a pretty good-sized shark. About five foot, this was my estimation. And so I very calmly said to my wonderful wife, 
I said, don't panic, but there's a shark below us. <laughs> she didn't say a word. She didn't scream. She didn't do it. Here was the immediate reaction. Hand on butt of child in front of her on the ladder, and it was like with superhuman powers. Whoosh! <laughs> right? Like a cat or a frog. Why? Right? Boom! On the platform. Next kid. Whoosh! Boom! Right? Then she goes up, and as she goes up, what's she doing? Legs are kicking. Like, like I'm like getting hit by a deer or something. <laughs> right? And there she goes. No thought given to me whatsoever. <laughs> It's me and the shark. We're just hanging out in the water together, right? But the kids are safe. And she's yelling for the kids to get down. She covers the kids. I can see her. She covers the kids. <laughs> On the platform. It was amazing. I'm in there. I was never so proud of her. <laughs> you know, I was proud of her. We have an agreement. No matter what, without regret, save the kids. No matter what, without regret, you save our kids, period. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, spiritual family have that same agreement. That's John 3.16. No matter what, you come down and you rescue our kids. That's about the best explanation of the Trinity that I can imagine. And that agreement is on behalf of all of you in this room, and all of you watching online. That's God's great love for us. Last point, everybody. Suffering shows us what true love really is. Suffering shows us what true love really is. So in this, that Tom read a few moments ago, it talks about this binding and loosing thing. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is going to be loosed in heaven, right? So what is this? I've heard all kinds of silly interpretations of this. And I would just ask you to go back to who Jesus Christ is and what's happening in Matthew 16 when he is saying it. If I heard people say, oh yeah, man, we're just going to, we're going to bind up, bind up in, from my life that I'll never suffer again. I want to bind up in my life, you know, that I don't ever have any problems again. And what do I want to lose? I want to lose health. I want to lose, lose wealth. I want to lose prosperity in my life. That's what it's all about. And yet, in this story, Jesus Christ says, I must go and suffer. So something's wrong with that. So what is really being bound up and what is really being loose? This is what I want to look at here in conclusion. Remember what I said a few minutes ago? The God never suffers. The closer you get to God, the less you're going to suffer. Yet you don't see that play out in the story of Jesus or those who are closest to him. What is love? Love and suffering, everybody. This is universally believed. I, 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 I believe that you and I, could, we could all sit down and have a conversation and you would probably immediately say, yes, you're right. I think this is universally believed. Love and suffering go hand in hand. They're like peanut butter and jelly. People who say, you know, I believe in a God of love. Well, Why? I mean, that whole idea came from Jesus, but okay, why? I believe in God of love. I don't believe in Jesus dying on the cross. I don't believe anybody needs to suffer for me. Well, what, well, why do you, can you give me any evidence? Is there any empirical evidence of why you would believe that God actually loves you? Is there any evidence? Love and suffering go hand in hand. They're like peanut butter and jelly, and I want to build that case and then end this sermon. You think of the greatest love stories of all time. I can guarantee you the greatest love stories of all time all have one common element to it suffering. You don't create this incredibly moving story or, mo or, 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 right, or, or a movie picture, right? Uh, 
You don't do this and say, okay, here's this couple that have had nothing but ease and happiness and joy. They've jet-setted around the world. They've never had a, a moment of problem in their life. And, and, then, and then you go to the scene where they're walk, this couple who's had nothing but ease of life, and they're just walking down the beaches of Hawaii together, holding hands in hands. And the entire audience is like in tears. Oh, my gosh, look how much they love each other. Isn't that awesome? That doesn't happen. <laughs> doesn't happen, does it? What are the greatest love stories of all time? Romeo and Juliet? A little bit of suffering there? Tears there. How about crime and punishment? A little bit of suffering there. How about what is considered the greatest romantic love story movie of all time? The Notebook. A little bit of suffering there. They've been married for years. She has Alzheimer's. She's in a home. He has all of his faculties, physically healthy, mentally healthy. All the kids come to him, Dad, leave her. She doesn't even know who you are. Go and live your life. Enjoy. Be happy. And he says, never, ever, ever. I will not leave her. But you're suffering. I don't care. I stay right here with her. And that night that the two of them, right, Die together in that bed. Love and suffering go hand. You can't have one without the other. The whole world measures love this way. Sacrifice, suffering, Jesus on the cross. That's what true love is. I read a story a number of years ago, many, many years ago, actually. It was about a minister, a young couple in his church. Um, and the wife, I think she was in her 20s. They were young maybe 30s, terrible car accident. And in the accident, her face was injured really badly. In the accident, particularly around her mouth, just... So she went in for a surgery. She comes out of the surgery, and there's just tremendous, you know, apprehension. What am I going to look like? And this minister was saying that he was actually in the room with the husband when she was brought in after she came to and he looked at her and he saw that her mouth was still really really twisted and he just his heart just sank he thought oh my gosh and he could tell that she was really embarrassed that she was so apprehensive about this moment that she was so scared but he said the husband the husband Looked at her, huge smile on his face. He ran over to her and he said, you are so beautiful. And her mouth was twisted. Her lips were twisted. And the minister said that this husband twists his lips to match hers and bends down and gives her a big kiss. And that minister says, I felt like I was in the presence of God. Love and suffering go hand in hand. Jesus Christ comes down because of love to rescue all of us. What good is suffering? It is power. It is how we know what true love really is. So we're rethinking church and we're rethinking suffering today. And the church is supposed to be a place of love. You know what the Bible says? It's actually, Peter writes this. The same guy that Jesus says, right, I must suffer. And Peter says, no way. And then towards the end, Peter's life, he talks about, he talks to and about this whole issue of suffering. He says this in the letter of 1 Peter, he says to the church, his church, we are a holy nation, 
We're a royal priesthood. We are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And what does that mean? It means we're to call other people out. So what's binding and loosing? Binding is we want to bind unforgiveness. We want to bind bitterness. We want to bind selfishness. And we want to loose love, the love of Jesus Christ on this earth. And that's what we're going to do right now in the next closing minutes. So the music team, as you can see, on cue, they already got up and walked out. So here they come. Hello, music team. Look at them, how happy they are. Okay. I want you to do something as they're coming out. Please get your cell phones. Locate your... I know you know right where your cell phones are, right? So locate yourself. Could you do that? Would you locate your cell phones? We want to use our cell phones here uh, to loose love on the planet, if we can, for just a moment. So if you'll take out your cell phones, we are going to right here, right now, loose some love. All right. Team is going to play for us instrumentally for just a few moments. And here's what I'd like you to consider all over this room. All over this room this morning, there are those of us who are experiencing broken relationships in our life. All right. And we're waiting. I know, I know you're probably the same way that I am. You probably function the same way as I do. You know, when I got a broken relationship in my life, you know, I'm, I'm all, I'm waiting for somebody else to make the first step towards reconciliation, right? I'm waiting for the other person to say, I'm sorry, but that, that's not right. That's not the Jesus way. That's not loosing love. So we're going to bind up that whole idea of, look, I'm waiting for you. I'm, I'm over here in my Ford over here. Instead, we want to lose love. And what I want to say is, is for some of us, there's a name coming to your mind right now. It might be a family member. It might be a friend. There's a broken relationship somewhere. And you can lose love this morning by sending a text or an email right now. Say to that person on the text or email, look, I'm sitting in church right now. I'm thinking of you. Sitting in church right now. I'm thinking of you. And I just, I, I just want to say, I want to make things right with you. I want to say, I, I want us to put things back together again, right? What you're doing here is you're doing Matthew 16. You're being the church. Jesus says, I will build my church. Here's how Jesus is building his church. He's loosing love on the planet. For some of us, this is going to be a very important moment. For some of us, it's a very emotional moment because the person you're thinking about, you're hurt deeply. But you can loose it. You can bind up all the bad stuff and you can loose the good stuff. By taking that first step. Here's one thing. Here's the second thing. I know a bunch of people and you know a bunch of people this morning who are hurting. They're discouraged. I talked about our American teens a few moments ago. That just weighs so heavy on me. You know somebody, somebody who's hurting. You know somebody who needs encouragement. You know somebody who's going through a tough time. Somebody who needs hope. Somebody who's struggling with some life-threatening problem. They need physical healing. You know somebody. And what I would love for you to do, whether it's a mended relationship or somebody who needs hope or help or healing, I'd love for you to send them a text right now and just say, I'm sitting in church and I'm thinking of you. I'm sitting in church and we're all getting ready. Anonymously, we're all going to collect our prayers in just a second and we're going to pray for every single person that gets that text or gets that email that the love of God would fall upon them, that encouragement, that mending, that forgiveness, that healing, that hope, that all that would happen. And we're all going to pull all our prayers together like in a big net this morning. We're going to ask God to come down and to do what only God can do. But we're going to make that first step. So I'm going to say a really, really brief prayer and just ask God to show us who that person is. Show us what to say and then to give us the strength to send it. Because I can imagine some of you are like, yeah, I know who that person is and there ain't no way I'm sending it. I'm going to ask that Jesus Christ would give us the power to do what he wants us to do this morning. Okay? 
God, I ask that you would show each one of us in this room who it is, what we need to text, what we need to email, and you would give us the strength to do it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So if you'll just, I'm going to send a couple uh, texts myself right now. I want to ask that you would consider doing the same thing. And let's just lose some love on this planet. If you weren't able to get all that out, uh, please you feel free to continue to stay seated or stay in here as long as you want. Uh, we're going to, in just a moment, we're going to stand. I'm going to let you know that our prayer team is going to be over here. And if you're new, I'd love to meet you at Grayson 5, which happens right over here. But we're going to stand, we're going to pray, and then the music team has a special song they want to sing to us. And they're going to sing us out of the building, okay? All right, so if you'd like, if you'd stand with me, if you're finished texting and emailing, feel free to stand with me. Let's have a special prayer. What we want to do here in these moments, we want to just pull all our prayers together. God knows who you sent that email to. God knows who you sent that text to. God knows that person's name. We want to ask for the power of Jesus Christ to come down on whoever that person is that you sent that email or text to, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you so much that you want to loose love on this earth, that you want to loose the spirit of Jesus Christ to all the names that went out on these texts and emails. God, I ask that you would do something special. I ask that, God, you would heal people. I ask that you would help people. You'd encourage people. I ask that you'd mend relationships. I ask, God, that you would change lives. I ask, Lord, that you would do a special thing in both the sender and the receiver of these texts and emails to the glory of Jesus Christ. And that, Father, finally, you'd help us, Grace Community Church, to be the church that you want us to be, that you would build this church your way and your time for the glory of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord. And everybody said, amen. All right. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.